Welcome to I've Tried Everything, a podcast series focusing on behavior support in schools. I'm your host, Angela Eisenberg. I'm the program manager for behavior here at the Service Center. Our special guest for this series is Melinda Marquez. Hi, Angela. Behavior is such a hot topic, especially for campus leaders. When I was a principal, I was always looking for guidance around behavior. You know, I think the name of this podcast is great because, in fact, I felt like I did try everything. Our goal with this series is to provide strategies and guidance for campus leaders on how to best support their campus on behavior. We'll be sharing insights, our experiences, and the things we've learned along the way. So step away from your email, grab that last cup of coffee, and let's get started. Today we're going to talk about multi-tiered systems of support and really thinking about how do you navigate the systems piece of making sure that you have processes in place across campus to support your staff, to support your students, and the world of behavior. Melinda, tell me a little bit about your tiered supports on the campuses that you supported. Well, we did implement PBIS, and that was when I was a teacher. So looking far, far back (laughs) into those days, we know that, you know, we had that tier one where it was the whole campus-wide, campus-wide expectations and implementation. And, you know, that took quite a while to implement because we had to create all of those systems. We were a brand new campus. I had the opportunity to open up a brand new campus, and we had to start from from the bottom, from nothing. So we created those campus-wide expectations, and we actually worked with Region 13, uh, specialist Albert Phelps, to assist us in this implementation. So we did the campus-wide expectations, what is expected in the restrooms, in the hallways, what does it look like in the cafeteria, what does it look like for arrival procedures, end-of-day procedures, any transitions. So we did the tier one. And then tier two, we as a principals, whenever, because as a classroom teacher, I might not have been as involved with the tier two pieces, but as a uh, campus principals, when I really took ownership of those tier two interventions for our at-risk students. Those at-risk students, we partnered them with a mentor. We had a really systemic process. We looked at the data, and not only academic data, but behavioral data as well. We did collect that behavioral data, and we partnered those students with a staff mentor in order to support those SEL needs. And what we saw when we really concentrated on those tier two students. Not only did their behavior improve, but their academics improved as well. You mean you looked at the whole child instead of just half of them? (laughs) We did, and it worked. It was, it's so refreshing to put a system in place and really see the benefits of that system through data, not just through, you know, I think that student's doing better, but look at the data. We look at the number of referrals or the number of, you know, calls to the office or, but also look at their scores, see what's happening with their academics. It's just very exciting to see um, those, in, those multi-tiered systems of support work and put in place. And then also we had that tier three piece whenever we work specifically, we had that specific group of kiddos that we had some individualized behavior contracts and, and behavior strategies put into place for those tier three students. And most mainly those kiddos worked specifically with our behavior coach or they worked specifically with me as a campus principal or my assistant principal. 
We're looking at that multi-tiered system of support. She referenced tier one, tier two, tier three. So tier one is whole campus. So all students, all students were impacted by this support, whether it be school with expectations, common area rules, every student's gonna get that. Usually about 80 to 90% of your student population is impacted by putting those tier one systems into place. You typically have about 10 to 15% of your students that fall into tier two, and that's those targeted interventions. You guys use mentoring as one of your targeted interventions. And then tier three kids are usually one to 5% of the student population. This is more individualized support. This is where we're looking at. Usually kids don't fall into tier or tier three by themselves. They're usually tier three with their families. They're usually some, di- there's some family dynamics that are usually also happening. So it's, it's how do you support that student that might be coming to us every day in crisis? And how do you help them to feel grounded, feel safe, feel supported on campus and be able to make those academic growth? And I love that you said you looked at the whole child. I think for so long, we've talked about this side of the triangle is academics, but we're going to talk about this side of the triangle is behavior. It's a whole triangle. It's a whole system of support, a multi-tiered system of support. So you should be looking at academics. Your RTI process should be looking at behavior, PBIS, those restorative practices that campus put into place, social emotional learning, mental health trauma-informed practices, those things that are helping, those initiatives, processes that are helping students to become productive members of society and that we're adding value to them. At the end of every year, you look back and say, how did we add value to the student to help them to be successful? So that's that multi-tiered framework. The other piece that I really like that you talked about was data of really how, what data did you guys look at? How do you reflect on that? If you look systematically and look at the whole United States, we talked about, and I've tried everything, this idea that the highest referral time in the fall is Columbus Day to Thanksgiving. In the spring, it's usually Valentine's Day to spring break, followed very closely behind with May, right after testing is done and, you know, behaviors increase kind of those last few weeks of school. Those are the highest hit times of high referrals. But if you look at the other statistic that's kind of interesting is boys and girls, boys are referred significantly more than girls. Is that because girls are better behaved, Melinda? Um, I'm not thinking it is. <laughs> Come on, we're so sweet and innocent. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, unfortunately, I think girls, um, we end up having girl drama that's referred to the counselor. Boys are typically more referred to the office. So when you look at that multi-tiered system of support and you say, hey, we're having a disproportionate number of boys versus girls, it would flag you guys to say, what are we doing to help support our male population on our campus, to help our young gentlemen to be successful? And what things do we need to put into place for them? If they're having lots of aggression, then maybe we look, need to look at anger management and how are we giving them the tools to express their anger in an appropriate way versus girl drama. And if the counselor is seeing an immense amount of girl drama, what are we doing to support girls and how to have those relationship skills? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, sorry, I think it's so important. You know, you're talking about data and collecting data. And I think people may think the number of office referrals, but it's so much more than that. It's what is the office referral being written for? 
like you said, it's, you know, the boys versus the girls. You can even look at those, you know, your low socioeconomic students. You look at those subgroups. You look at the populations to try to figure out, to be able to key in on where the problem, where is it lying, you know? And even looking at teachers, do you have one teacher who writes significantly more referrals than another teacher? And what's, so what's going on? Does that teacher need more support? Where are we with our systems and processes on campus and how can we adjust those to address the data? And I think it's data-driven decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going back, we make data-driven decisions in academics. Right, it's such a common term you hear in academics, but very rarely do you hear that's being done uh, with behavior. And it makes sense to go back to say, what is our data and what data do we look at? Mm -hmm. Attendance data is a great behavioral data to look at. And I think an interesting, data subset that a lot of people don't think about around attendance is staff attendance. Mm-hmm. Yes, we definitely learned, you know, through my years to, to look at staff attendance, to figure out how to address that. Once again, how, how are we going to address that? What system do we have in place? And, you know, as we think about this behavioral data, it's important, you know, part of the effective schools framework that lever number four, positive school culture actually hits on behavioral data. And, that the district's providing that behavioral data to the campuses so they can figure out what to do or provide training to the campus on how to look at data. Because just as we said, teachers don't always come in with that knowledge. A lot of times administration doesn't come in with the knowledge of knowing exactly what to look for, what trends to look for, and how to address those trends. Yeah, so I think a campus that I supported several years back I thought they did something in an interesting way. They had the AP, one of the APs, meet with grade levels. This was an elementary second through fifth grade campus. And so they met with the students as a grade level, and they shared the discipline data with the students. The same time that the students were looking at the discipline data, the staff was looking at the discipline data in their small group with the principal. So they were sitting there analyzing behavior trends, patterns, and the students were, they were talking about what's happening, guys. We're seeing a, a large number of you guys being tardy right now. What's going on? And so students were giving their input, and they were also brainstorming as small groups and those grade levels of things that the campus could do to address some of the data that was reflected. Wow. Talk about taking ownership of the data, having the kiddos in third through, or, you know, that grade level, that is powerful. And they would come up with some interesting ahas that the teachers didn't even look at. They didn't even kind of go, oh, that wasn't even an area that we saw as a need. But the students were saying, hey, we need to address this. Perspective. So Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes it's just how do you pull in from that multi-tiered system of support? How do you pull in the data to help support our processes. And the other thing I think that a little misnomer, and and you addressed it briefly in our last series when we were talking about consequences versus interventions, that it's, it's over time. It takes time to put stuff like this into place. Three to five years is how long that it takes to put a process into place. It's not a program. There's no guidebook that says this is exactly what you need to do for right. MTSS. And it's not a one size fits all. You have to adjust to the needs of the campus. So your campus might look a little bit different than a campus that's down the street because you have different clientele, you have different staff. Right. And it not only does it adjust from campus to campus, it adjusts from year to year, depending on the staff that you have as well. 
I met back, um, the Service Center Region 13 has been doing PBIS, Positive Behavior Interventions and Support, over 20 years. They've been supporting campuses in this arena. And I had the opportunity to go back to one of the first campuses that the Region Center supported in implementing PBIS. And they've had several changeovers with principals, assistant principals. And I asked the principal, how have you guys kept PBIS going? with changes and and still doing it with fidelity. And he said, the key for us is that we've always put staff development time around it. So the second that you don't spend time addressing it and putting it out there for your staff is the second that staff feel like that that's not something we do anymore. Right, or it's not important. If you're not monitoring it, then it's not important. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, as he said, we have consistently met We have a standing meeting every month for our behavior team to meet and look and say, what's happening? Let's look at the data. Let's look. And we're never okay with the status quo. We're always saying, what's next? What can we do differently? Tell me a little bit about your team and how your team met, Melinda. The PBIS team? Yeah. So we, when I was a teacher, we would meet, you know, since we opened up that new campus, we really met, we, I bet we met once a month. I mean, once a week, at least to start this process. It was an overwhelming undertaking, but it really did pay off because just as we have to teach the students in the classroom, the expectations, we do have to teach the teachers the expectations as well. So we would meet and talk through you know, at the beginning, we were just creating systems and processes before school started. And then once it implemented, kind of going back and refining those, because we always know that, you know, what's on paper may not match with reality when it's rolled out or the, the students that are there, the teachers that are there, we just need to tweak and alter that based on the, the observations and the data collected. Yeah. And I think when when you look at the implementation, sometimes there's some ahas of we thought it sounded really good in the summer. And in reality, we can't have a silent hallway. I, and I, th- I know that that was an area that most elementaries struggle with is, do we allow talking in the hallway? Oh, yeah. You have lips and hips. You have put a bubble in your mouth. You have walk like a duck. Anything to keep the children from chattering. The people that I find to be the most talkative in the hallway are the teachers. That's right. You know, we talk about modeling those expectations and you're right. It's it's a difficult thing to do whenever the teachers aren't modeling those expectations. Yeah, I I laughed at a principal. She she cracked me up. Their expectation was zero talk in the hallways. They were supposed to do a finger wave. And when she would see a student, she'd go, good morning. I'm so glad you're here. And she'd give them a hug. And then she'd see somebody else and how are you doing? How are you? know? And then at the end of the day, I said, how's that zero voice level working for you in the hallway? She was like, oh, God, I know. I just can't not say something. <laughs> and so I said, if it's a practice that you feel it's important to have those relationships and build those connections, then we need to review whether zero conversation needs to really happen in the hallway figuring out why you wanted zero conversation in the hallway is it manageable i mean if you're spending all of your time and effort trying to make sure children aren't talking i mean is it worth that time of management yeah Mm -hmm. and i've seen from middle schools and high schools 
this idea of walk to the right. We're going to walk on the right-hand side. Who's monitoring walking on the right-hand side? Our staff walking on the right-hand side. I think sometimes we put things in a place thinking this is the best, this is the biggest benefit for our campus and for our students, but we really don't think about the day-to-day operations of can we follow through with that? Can we actually do it? Right. Or why was this implemented? Why is it? Why do we need them to walk on the right? You know, when we started our, our PBIS, that was one of the things you have to walk on the right side of the hallway. And let me tell you, we did it for years and it's still instilled in me because when I walk on a campus, I walk on the right side of the hall. And if somebody is not walking on the right side of the hall, don't understand why they're not walking on the right side of the hall. <laughs> You're not following expectations. That's right. <laughs> um, the other thing I think people fall into a trap is having too many rules too many things to manage. I was in a cafeteria and they had 19 rules in the cafeteria. And I bet you some of those were do not. Yes, no talking, no running, or, you know, no getting up out of your seat. And one that just cracked me up, it was place your napkin in your lap. That's a rule. Okay. That's a rule. Okay. Uh, a rule that they were supposed to follow. And, and somebody's monitoring that rule. I mean, that's <laughs> ideally what you want to happen. De- ideally, that's what should be happening. And and let's be real. An elementary monitor is opening milk, at letting students go to the restroom. They have all these different behaviors and things that they have to manage, making sure that they're not making roads with their mashed potatoes and pouring milk on it to see how it flows. You know, those important things as a monitor. <laughs> it's a science experiment. It's okay. <laughs> we're, we're just uh, learning about movement. But yeah, so really kind of thinking through, like, how, who's going to monitor that? Who's going to make sure? Because if we have it posted, we have to follow through with it. Right, right. So we've talked, you know, PBIS is just one of those intricate multi-tiered processes that you put into place from a tier one, tier two, tier three. We don't want to forget about the other great multi-tiered pieces that need to be inserted in that. PBIS can be your driver. It's your framework for a behavior. It's your framework across the campus for interventions, academic behavior, because it is that where we're looking at what interventions academically do we need to put in for academic success? What interventions behavior do we need to put in? But a campus that's saying, hey, we want to include restorative practices into our multi-tiered system of support. I'm Melinda Marquez, and we'll get back to today's episode in just a second. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and a review. It helps people find our podcast and helps us know what we can improve upon. Thanks. Now, let's get back to the show. Melinda, talk to us a little bit again about circles because you you shared that as a tool a couple of sessions ago in our podcast. But tell me again about circles and your utilization of that. Yes. So toward the end of my principalship, the campus, we started with the, the restorative discipline and started talking about circles and why you would do circles. You know, the biggest thing with teachers is the why. They need to know the why. Why are we doing the circles? What benefit will this have for our relationships and our community? Trying to figure that out. And, you know, even as someone now, as I'm going on, I go on a lot of campuses, do a lot of walkthroughs, visit with principals, but I'm seeing the circles pop up. And it is a way for those kiddos to talk in the mornings, to talk about their days, to figure out, you know, set the stage for the day. My daughter, she's a fifth grader, and I for the last three years, she's done circles. And that's one of the 
biggest things she comes home and talks to me about as a parent. She wants to tell me about the circle and what she got to share in the morning and how powerful that is for those students who they just want to speak out. They want to talk. And if you give them that opportunity to do that in the morning, you'll have a more focused child during the day. It's giving them a voice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't allow students that opportunity to share and hear from them. I have had the opportunity of of going onto campuses from elementary, middle, and high school, of looking at how to put restorative practices into place. And circles and the dynamics of building relationships and building community through circles is just really cool. And getting feedback from students on how much they like it. Mm -hmm. I went to a discipline alternative campus and I was going in to observe a teacher and she was out that day and they had a substitute. And so I thought, well, I'll just see what you know, procedures and things are in place, see how the students navigate it without the teacher being here. And the students told the substitute, we do a circle. That's the talking piece. We get in there. We tell you how we're, you ask us how we're feeling today. We tell you what, we tell you which emoji we're <laughs> feeling like that's on the board. And so there, here are these high school students that are telling this substitute how to navigate through the circle that they could have just run themselves without the teacher having to own the circle. And it was really cool how they kept wanting to go back to it. And, and I'm sure it didn't take that much time. Because what I've, what I've seen is once it gets started, it doesn't take that much class time. And, and a lot of the pushback we got from teachers or even now that I hear from principals is that we don't want to waste time. But that's just a waste of time because we have got to get into our teaks. We've got to teach the curriculum. But it once it gets started and gets rolling, it could be five minutes. I mean, five minutes of your class. And, you know, if you didn't have the circle, you'd be spending five minutes trying to get their attention. Yeah. I think it is, how do you want to focus that time? Do you want to focus that time proactively and set the stage? Or do we want to be reactive with our time and use that as a, hey, we've got to reteach expectations because our students are not following what it is we're, we're wanting. So I think it's that kind of tangled web of where do we put the time? Because we're still going to have that time mm-hmm. at some point in time to go back to it. And just hearing students, I did a tier two group with a group of boys, again, at a DAEP campus. And I had the opportunity to meet with them over a five-week span of time. Of course, some of the students got to go back to their home campus. So, But we had a core group that stayed with me those whole five weeks. The assistant principal was sitting in the meetings or the group with us so that he could then continue on doing these targeted groups with individuals or student groups on the DAEP campus. And the things that students eventually felt comfortable talking about that they were holding in was really astounding to the point that I left that campus multiple days in tears thinking, wow, that this is what these students are facing. One session, I just threw out the question of, hey, what is one goal that you have for this week? What is one thing that you're wanting to to work on? And a lot of the boys said we wanted to be in attendance because they had to make their days for the DAEP so they could go back to their home campus. And then I threw out the question was, what is one barrier that might prohibit you from meeting your goal. And some of the things that the boys told me were staggering to the point of which family members do they need to avoid that week because they knew that if they did, that drugs might be readily available to them or that they needed to make sure that they got food from their dad to make sure that their basic needs were being met because then their whole focus was on, I need to make money, so I need to get more hours so that we could have food. And so do I go to school 
and miss out on eight hours of getting money? Or do I go in and work my job and have more money to provide for my family? And those are some challenges that they were facing. And and that was what they were sharing with those targeted group circles. So looking at school-wide, you can have the build those communities, targeted group, restorative circles. You can really look at how that we are helping students navigate and giving them those tools in a different way where we're more intensive with our SEL support. And then those tier three re-entry circles of one of the mandates that we have from our last legislative session was that we need to have an individualized transition plan for students coming back from DAEP, JJEP, or residential treatment. So who's involved in those individualized plans, creating them, and what is included in that. And a re-entry circle would be a great way to re-enter that student into the campus and help to develop plan with the student instead of developing it for them and making them fit into the plan itself. So kind of thinking through what you could put into place tier one, tier two, and tier three for restorative practices. And the same thing flows for social emotional learning. How are we doing our curriculum or our support campus wide? How are we doing some targeted interventions for those targeted groups, like maybe some counseling sessions, some lunch bunches, that sort of thing, where they're getting more targeted skill development. And then those really high need students and what are we doing to support them and their skill development and social emotional growth. And if you're putting those things into place and you're doing them with fidelity, PBIS, restorative, social emotional learning, so many of those practices are trauma informed that those will naturally be a part of that process. Thinking about the word fidelity, Melinda, how did you look at the fidelity of implementation for PBIS? What are things that you guys looked for to say, are we doing this and are we doing it well? You know, one of the pieces is we had to do, you had to do observations to watch to see if the children were following the expectations and train the teachers on how to reinforce those expectations. So if you're in the hallway or even in the restroom when you have restroom expectations, is anyone monitoring that? Are students following it? If they're not, you used a great word. What are the barriers keeping them from following that? What are the barriers with the implementation of this piece? So doing observations and collecting data. I've also seen surveys, Mm -hmm. surveying staff, Mm -hmm. students, parents. Yes, yep, those are always used. Surveys a tricky thing because Sometimes we think it's easy to just uh, create a Google form and send it out, but survey, it's a very intricate art form to create survey that really pulls in the data that you're looking for. And I think it's when do you survey? Mm-hmm. Like I would not ask staff how behavior is working right now at, during Shocktober, during that high time in the spring or in May. And I know most people survey their staff in May about how things are going. And I will get feedback from principals that said 90% of the results say that we need more behavior support <laughs> because that is the whole focus at the end of May. We're done with testing. We're done, you know, and behaviors are starting to spike. Everybody's ready to go home. Behaviors at the forefront of everybody's focus. And then we're going to ask them, how is behavior working? It's horrible. So, And we're going to redo any kind of structure that we possibly had in place because we're going to do fill day. We're going to do assemblies and we're going to put all these things in place that we didn't get to do all year long because we were so focused on making sure that we are providing the curriculum. And those last two weeks of school, we're going to throw any structure out and then we're 
we're going to say, I don't know why the students are misbehaving. Oh, what's this behavior data? It looks different in May. Yeah. It's crazy. And let's survey our <laughs> students and our staff about that. So I think it is really thinking about what you ask in the survey, but also when do you when do you give a survey? And what do you do with the results? You know, I've seen people who give surveys just to give surveys because they were told they had to give surveys. A campus, a district maybe tells a campus you need to give a survey. So they do it. But the results, maybe the administrative team looks over the results, but it's kind of stays in that bubble. The big question is the now what? And that's to any data piece you have. You collect the data, but now what are our next steps? What are we going to do with this data? Why do we collect it if we're not going to act on it? Here's a principal's TED talk that was, so what, now what? Mm-hmm. So what? Yeah. There's the data. Now what? What are we going to do? And I, if you're going to survey students, you need to provide the feedback to students on what the survey results were. Right. If you're going to ask for surveys from parents, how do you provide them with that? And then also navigating that you typically hear from parents that are super excited about your campus and they love you or they're super frustrated and they're going to tell you all of the angst that they feel and unfortunately we sometimes we don't get to hear from that middle ground parent Mm -hmm. yeah that's true how do you look at that data through an objective lens to say okay this is what we got how do we how do we take those results Mm -hmm. and make decisions right so we're a data-driven decision making process so we think about that multi-tiered system support we've talked a lot about data looking at it reviewing it there's lots of different data pieces Fidelity of implementation, there are some really great tools out there. There's a tiered fidelity inventory, pbis.org, that you can utilize that looks at tier one, tier two, and tier three implementation of PBIS to see, are you doing that? Castle.org has some tools for social emotional learning, restorative practices, International Institute for Restorative Practices. You can find some ways to do some self-surveys of the different 11 essential elements to say, how well are we doing those personally? Does any of those include rubrics? So the Tiered Fidelity Inventory does. It mm-hmm. has a rubric based off of zero, one, or two. So for example, a PBIS team is one of the indicators that you would want to see. Zero would be we're not meeting regularly. We don't have an agenda and an administrator is not present. To a two, we have a standing meeting. Uh, we're meeting at least monthly. We have an administrator that is a part of the team and we have an agenda that we use to abide by it. So you kind of scale yourself out of where you're at. And when you look at doing something like the tiered fidelity inventory, it's not about getting the grade. So don't lie. Uh, and right. I, I see people sometimes tempted to say, oh, we're really good at this. Right. And I'm like, it's that self-assessment piece. Yep. And it's really to say, let's use this tool for what it's truly meant for and say, what are we doing well? And where do we need to put some focus for next year or second semester? Because we have slacked on that a little bit. And what we typically see with any kind of behavior initiative is that we usually start strong and it is gangbuster at the beginning of the school year. And as the school year progresses, we tend to shift the focus from behavior to academics. And in the fall We're meeting regularly. We're having those conversations at uh, staff meetings about behavior. And then in the spring, it's like we forget behavior even as a topic. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're just focused on making sure we're doing that last push toward the end of the school year. And and we forget that we need to make sure that we protect those team meeting times and that an administrator needs to be there. I think 
processes should be team driven, but administrator has to have the vision, has to have the drive, has to be the model, and they have to be a part of the team. Right, because that's where that connection to that um, positive school culture comes in. And I saw this on a campus where the principal wasn't a part of the team, Uh, assistant principal was assigned and they didn't have any power to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So the team would meet, they would come up with it. The assistant principal would take the information back to the principal that they talked about. The principal would give their suggestions input. They would have to meet again to get the feedback from the principal and manipulate the then the IEP had to go back. So they were meeting like four and five times where if she was a part of the team and she needed that level of input for the team, then she needed to actually be on the team mm-hmm. because it, it became a, a waste of, of team time and people's time. And what ended up happening by the end of the school year, they would have like two members of their team actually show up for the meeting because they found that really it didn't matter what they talked about because there's no action. There was no follow through that was going to take place. Mm -hmm. So Melinda, did you as a principal assign somebody uh, to be on the behavior team or did you serve on the behavior team yourself? My campus assistant principal actually served on that team. She led all the behavior RTI processes But we worked in such tight or close proximity that I was comfortable with her making decisions. Of course, we we met all the time, you know, daily we met, but any decisions that needed to be made about the behavior pieces or campus-wide expectations, I felt truly confident in her abilities to make that decision and not only make the decision, but make sure it aligned with our vision, mission, values, and goals. So thinking about those vision, mission, values, and goals, that's going to really help drive our positive school culture and climate and really making sure that we are focusing on what we need to focus on for our campus and and making sure that that aligns. So thinking today, we talked about a multi-tiered system of support, Mm -hmm. the importance of data, importance of looking at the whole child and not just academics and behavior, but looking at the whole child. We've talked about the different components and how that they can work together into a multi-tiered framework. On next week's episode, we are gonna talk about positive school climate and culture and how to link those processes and initiatives back to the culture climate through vision, mission, goals. If you like what you heard so far, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Angela Eisenberg. And I'm Melinda Marquez. And we'll see you next week.